uh, pray together before we begin. <clears throat> Father, we thank you um, that you draw us near to your heart, God, that we are um, called by you and um, receive your grace as a great gift, a great blessing for us. God, I pray now that as we go into your word, um, as we seek uh, to, to gain understanding, to gain wisdom, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, and give us a heart that's ready to receive a powerful truth about who you are. God, be with me now as I attempt to um, share your word, uh, to attempt to articulate your word, and just uh, let your, your truth come out clearly um, and easily understood. We thank you for this time of worship, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, in movies or books, there's, there's oftentimes these scenes that are really predictable, that when you're watching the movie, like, you can know ahead of time that that, that scene is going to come. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, there's just these, these moments where you're like, I can already tell what's happening here, and this is so predictable, and uh, really, these are all throughout our movies and, and literature. So it could be something like in the beginning of the movie, there's this dramatic capture scene, you know, where someone is, is taken from their home or they're taken or uh, separated from loved ones, family, their group. Um, and we, we know that that's going to drive the plot of, of the movie going forward. Or it's, it's an unlikely friendship. You know, you've got two characters that are very different, right? But you can tell in the beginning they don't like each other, but you can tell they're going to they're gonna come together and be friends as it goes. Like, you just, you just know. I'm thinking, like, Shrek and Donkey. Have you all seen Shrek? Yeah, Shrek and Donkey. Or, like, we watched Zootopia yesterday. Uh, Zootopia, there's, like, a fox and a, a bunny rabbit that, you know, they become friends in the, that movie. Um, but... These ideas are all throughout our movies and TV and books, and really, even as I talk about them, you probably, you've got these scenes in your mind. You're like, this is the prototypical scene for this moment. Um, and one of these moments we could describe as a reunion scene. Uh, well, this is the scene where you see two characters who have been separated for some reason, and they're like a big distance between them, maybe it's a field, maybe it's whatever, and you see them and from far off, and then it's this moment of like complete joy that comes over them, and they run, and they're going to embrace, you know what I'm talking about? You've seen those, those movie scenes before, um, so it can be family members, romantic partners, it can be anything, just characters who've been reunited after a period of time apart. So these moments are usually very passionate. They're emotional. They're when you're ready to, to get your, your happy uh, to cry tissues out. You know what I'm talking about? When you're just like, oh, this is so sad, so sweet, whatever. Uh, so these moments, they're, they're emotional. When we come to this moment in the prodigal son story, it's the fourth week on it. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out how to present it in a way that is a little bit different than what you might have heard the past past three weeks. Well, we come to this section of the reunion, where the, the son returns home um, and is greeted by this father who from a long way off sees him and runs 
to embrace him. And we see in this moment that it's, it's kind of like that scene in the movie, right? You're like, oh, this is beautiful, that forgiveness, I'm ready to shed a happy tear. Um, and, and that's what you kind of expect. It's a father with great love and forgiveness running to embrace his estranged son and all is right with the world. And it's an emotional moment, um, right? That's what we would perceive. Well, as it turns out, uh, the first century audience listening to this parable uh, probably was not filled with sweet sentiments in this moment. Their response was not the same as ours is. Uh, it turns out they m- most certainly did not hear this moment the same way that we do. Uh, and, and what I want to reveal to, to us, um, and I want to understand that in the eyes of a first century Jewish and Middle Eastern culture, this reunion is not a moment of complete joy. It's, it's not a moment for your happy tears. Uh, in fact, it was more than likely a moment of complete shock. Complete and total shock. Uh, the Pharisees in the first century, Middle Eastern listeners, they would not believe what they were hearing. So... Uh, let me try and explain. So the, the prodigal son story is one that is so familiar to you that you probably grew up hearing it. And, and for that reason, with a lot of stories in the Bible, we hear them and we, we think we understand them, but we don't have the, the depth of understanding that these first century listeners would have had. And part of the reason that we may not experience it the way that Jesus intended it to be experienced is because there's a distance between us and the original listeners. In other words, Jesus was not a 21st century white man living in rural America. Um, Jesus lived in a totally different time period. And he lived in a totally different culture. And we cannot experience this story in the same manner that a Jewish rabbi or a Pharisee would, or as a Middle Eastern peasant would. So, just get that out of the way first, that we've got to put, do our best to put ourselves in their seats, so that when we're hearing this story, we truly experience the depth of it. I want to focus a lot on culture today, Um, and that might be boring to some of you, that might be interesting to some of you, but I think that if we make it our task to hear and see this story in the eyes of those who first heard it, we get a totally different meaning. We get something that's not just filled with forgiveness and emotion, but something that's filled with scandal. Um, Three components of this reunion, I'll just walk through it. The expected reunion, um, the true reunion, and a magnificent celebration. That's three parts. So I want to revisit what we went to last week, starting in verse 17, Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So same story we've read the past four weeks, right? So we remember last week that he comes to his senses in the pig trough. It says he came to himself. He decides that he will return to his father and ask him if he might work as a day laborer, someone who only made their wages every single day. This was the lowest form of employed worker in this society. Um, He's dying of hunger, and he comes up with this plan that he will confess his wrongdoing before his father and simply just return home and no longer be a son but a day laborer. And we hear this, and it sounds very simple, and it actually sounds like the right thing to do. It sounds like something that probably all of us have had to do at some point, which is eat crow and admit you're wrong and go back and swallow your pride and say, you know, like, I was wrong. I'll do whatever it takes for you to forgive me. And we're thinking simple enough, right? This is a a son coming to get forgiveness. Well, thanks to the work of some some studies in ancient culture and understanding the ancient world, we can understand that what this younger son is doing is actually much more than just having to admit that he's sorry. Um, There's a scholar that I was was reading uh, while while studying for this. His name's Ken Bailey, and he grew up in the Middle East, um, and most of his career was spent attempting to discover the cultural keys that unlock the biblical world. Uh, how do we read the Bible in this way? And he's, he, he's written extensively on this parable, and it gives us some, some keys into better understanding what this son would have expected when he was returning home. And actually, what he might have been expecting was more than what, what we would see um, as Western readers. So first, we must understand that this culture is driven by the principles of honor and shame. You do whatever brings your family and your group and your community honor, and you avoid what brings your family, your group, and your community shame. Now, we might think we're kind of like that, but no way to the extent that the cultures of the Middle East are. Um, The primary way in which an individual or family influences anybody is through the honor that they obtain. So we're in some sense like this, but certainly nowhere to near the extent of the ancient Middle East or even the Middle Eastern cultures of today. So considering this fact, we recognize that the younger son and the father's actions were both shameful. The father did not protect his honor. The son did not give his father due honor when he asked for his father to drop dead. An immense amount of shame is brought on the family and the entire village. This is a communal culture. And this father apparently is a pretty wealthy landowner who allows his son to shame him in this way. So when they hear that alone, they're, they're shocked. In fact, as Jesus tells this story, the Pharisees, they would not have believed that the father would have indulged that request. What they would have expected was for him to look firmly at his son, take a step back, and probably give him a backhand across the face. You know, some of you, that may have been your response to such a request as well have then made him work as a day laborer, not allowing the son to bring such shame on the family. This is simply unbelievable. 
This was unbelievable behavior. Secondly, Kim Bailey writes of a ritual or ceremony. This is just fascinating to me. You, think you may, may think it's boring. I think it's fascinating. He, he writes that there was a ritual or ceremony in Jewish tradition specifically for when a young Jewish boy went and lost his inheritance in Gentile lands. This ceremony, called the Kazaza ceremony, consisted of the young boy or the, the person who had lost the inheritance returning home, then having to sit in the middle of a village while the villagers brought this large, like, alabaster jar, and it would be filled with burnt nuts or corn because they knew that he would be hungry, because that's how hungry he would have to be to return back home to his father. And they would throw it down and bust it and say, you have been cut off. Something along the lines of, you are cut off from our people. And this ceremony would take place over multiple days for this person to sit in the village and be ashamed and mocked um, and laughed at. So it's the symbolic breaking of the relationship between the young man and his family. This ceremony served as a way for the village and the father to restore their honor, because we remember it's all about honor and shame, and if he was going to come back, they had to get their honor back. He wasn't just going to walk in there and be restored to even the, the part of day laborer. He had to receive the shame that he had given his father. So knowing all of this, we get a deeper sense of what he was expecting. This wasn't just him going back to say, I'm sorry. This was him agreeing to be publicly mocked and shamed and treated as someone lower than the lowest form of employable worker in this society. The decision to return to his father is one that would have required that he embrace the worst possible shame he could imagine. Still smelling of pig trough, having to be paraded in the village as a mockery, and only after being mocked, he would have the opportunity to work to pay back his debt, which, by the way, he could never do at those wages. So you might be thinking, yeah, all this is fine, but I don't really get what it has to do with me and what I'm supposed to hear in this parable. Well, do you remember when you were a kid and you did something that you weren't supposed to do? Maybe you broke one of your parents' lamps or you, like, got a bad grade at school or something, and you knew, like, you had to tell your mom and dad. There's, there's no getting around it. Like, they're going to find out, and it's better that you tell them than they find out some other way. So you even see this now with kids. When they're going to tell their parents, they'll walk with their heads down, you know, like this. They are, they're already ready for the punishment. Um, it's the moment. This, this, this moment right here with this younger son, it's that moment. Right? It's, it's him returning home with his head down, ready to receive a, a lashing for what he's did. He knows he's busted. It's, and, and let's take it at a practical level. Sometimes that's how we approach God as, as Christians. We approach God after we've sinned, ready to receive a lashing ready to to hear from God, I'm so disappointed in you. Ready to hear from God, how could you do that again? That's sometimes how we approach God, right? we, we, We like to sulk in our sin, and we think we're so bad that we can't turn to God and confess and repent because he's so ashamed of us. 
And the prodigal son returns home expecting anger, disappointment, punishment, mockery, and completely misses it. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't punish sin. He certainly does. But for his children, we can have confidence that when we return to our father, he's not going to shame us. When you return to your father, what you'll find is not what you expect. God desires that we approach him boldly, standing firm on the promise of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, there's this phrase that's repeated over and over. The Lord is great, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So at this point in the story, in verse 19, the Pharisees are thinking, yeah, it's about time he goes back. So the Pharisees are hearing this, and they're like, yeah, he needs to face the kazaza ceremony. He needs to be mocked. He needs to be shamed. And it's about time that father gets his honor back. And then we get to the true reunion. What happens in the true reunion? So in course, in verse 20, he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, we've talked about how that means the father was searching, was looking for him. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We come to this beautiful moment, right? We come to this moment in which we see the depth of the father's love for his son and we're ready to grab our tissues for the happy tears because this is the moment, right, where you just saw it coming the whole time. But the Pharisees hear this. He saw his son from a long way off and he runs to him. He runs to him. He gives him the best robe and a ring that restores him to the family, and they give him shoes? What is wrong with this father? Doesn't he have any backbone? What kind of man is this? You see, for a wealthy landowner or any dignified man, to run in this culture is just absurd. You do not run if you are dignified. If you are a noble man, you don't run. Um, and to run, he would have had to pull up his robe because they wore these long ropes, to pull up his robe, he would have exposed his legs, which was basically like running through the town butt naked. So we see this father who puts this immense amount of shame on himself. What is he doing? What is he doing? He's exposing his legs. He's running. This is just shameful. It's completely shameful. He greets the son. He gives him this family ring, the best robe, which probably and you'll probably talk about it next week, but was supposed to be reserved for the eldest son's wedding. He's given that away. He puts sandals on his feet. You don't wear sandals unless you're, you know, rich or working in the, a servant who's working in the house. The Pharisees are listening, desiring to see this worthless son face judgment. They're ready for the man to give it to him. And instead what they find is a shameful father honoring a shameful son. What is this? They must be asking. This story is complete madness. What about the Kazaza ceremony? What about him working to pay back his debt? What about restitution? What about the law, they ask. The son is overwhelmed by the father's response. The listeners are in shock. Nobody in this culture can understand the scandal of what this father has just done. He sacrificed his own honor and placed shame on himself so that reconciliation between him and his son could occur. Do y'all see where I'm going? 
The father running through the village, kissing his son. This shameful act allows for the son to be restored to the family. Do you see the picture? Jesus is saying that the father, in order to have relationship with his son, had to endure shame and dishonor so that the only, so that the son may avoid shame and dishonor. This is the gospel. There's, there's no way we can miss this. This is what Jesus did for us. Think about it. He condescended down into our broken and sinful world. He ran to us. He lived a life that we could not and offered us full sonship. He put a ring on our finger. He gave us the best robe. Gave us sandals. He offered us full restoration to God. We lived a life of sin and shame and brought immense amount of shame. And when we return to Him, we don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to pay it back. We don't have to be a day laborer. This type of grace is unmistakably godly. It's godly. Hebrews 12.2 says, and this is a really famous verse that you've probably heard a bunch of times. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. That is outlining this reunion scene. For the joy that was set before him, we'll talk about that in a minute, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And despised here doesn't mean hated, it means that he overcame it. He endured the shame of the cross and overcame it. And in comparison to the great joy that he was seeking, the shame was nothing. For the Father, the shame that he was bringing on himself was absolutely nothing compared to the joy of reuniting with his Son. Jesus took on the worst possible shame for you. He took on the worst possible shame from you, but for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? What is that joy that was set before Jesus that made him take on this shame? That made him give up his honor for you? What is that joy? Well, that gets us to a magnificent celebration, right? Verse 24. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. The final portion of the reunion where we see that the father has such great joy that he decides, let's have a party. Let's have a party. They slaughter the fattened calf which could feed an entire village. And it's a lively party, too. There's dancing and music. It's a full-on, you know, big blowout, whatever. And the Pharisees listening are completely dumbfounded at this point. They're like, I'm just done listening. I don't even care what... At this point, they're probably angry and, and just can't believe any word that comes out of this guy's mouth. The last section of the parable includes a conversation between the elder brother and the father, which we'll get into more next week. But I want to go ahead and introduce the idea that the elder son represents the religious elite. He represents the Pharisees. The elder son is the Pharisee who are listening to this story. 
The elder son is obviously not happy that his father just allows the younger son back and accepts him after all that he's done. And he complains that the father even slaughtered the fattened calf for him, which probably also should have been for an event like his wedding. So in the same day, he gives away his best robe, he gives away the fattened calf, all this stuff that should have been for him, right? Uh, Luke, Luke, Luke 15, verse 31. The response that the father gives, the response that the father's, father gives to the elder son's protest is so powerful. And we miss it. 31, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was fitting. Another, the Holman Christian says, we had to. We had to celebrate. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. This is not an option. The father is saying, I cannot contain my joy and excitement. I had to celebrate. I had to celebrate because this child of mine was separated from me and he's come home. The return of the lost son brings the father uncontainable joy. The first two parables in this chapter, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, go parallel to this. In verse 7 and verse 10, Verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy resounding in heaven over one sinner. He's not waiting to start the party until a whole church is formed. When one sinner repents, There's joy in heaven. This is what I want you to hear today. For that joy that was set before Jesus, that's why he took that shame. When a lost sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ, there's a party in heaven. There's a party in heaven. The Father gives incredible grace and he experiences incredible joy. One simple truth that we need to grasp is this, is this the type of God that you worship? He's not the type of God that we have in our minds all the time. Let me explain. Our picture of God is usually not someone who is just giddy with excitement when one of his children comes home. When someone repents and turns to him. Someone who just can't contain their joy. That's not usually how we visualize our God. We think Many people have this idea of God sitting in heaven and he's like stone-faced and he's angry and he's weighed down by all this sin in the world, right? That's how we visualize God. And maybe when someone repents or follows him, there's like this little half smile that comes across his face and he's like, oh, that's just, I'm still angry, but you know, that makes me a little happy. It's, it's something we imagine that he says something like, it's about time you came to your senses. You must never do anything wrong because I'm only pleased with you if you live perfectly. That's our image of God. That's how we view coming to God with our sin. That is not the God of the Bible. 
That is not the God we worship. The God we worship experiences unimaginable joy over one lost sinner. The joy is spreading and resounding from the angels and all of heaven is having a party because the grace of God has saved. The Pharisees think it's earning God's favor. They are the ones who have to restore the relationship. No. The Pharisees think it's them. It's not. It's a God of an unimaginable grace seeking out His joy. This is the joy that was set before Jesus. Why did Jesus take on the cross? Because He experiences great joy when you come to salvation. When one of His children turn to Him. Just sit for a minute. That's so weighty to me. And with this, we don't think about it that Christ, as He was embracing the worst possible shame, it was for His joy. Ultimately, our joy, but His joy and His glory. This is incredible news that the God we worship loves having parties. The God you worship this morning loves having parties. And He loves celebrating when a lost sinner comes home. The reunion of a lost sinner with the God who loves all people is truly magnificent and it requires a celebration. We had to celebrate. We have to celebrate. So, this morning, this is the call that the Father is giving to each of us. This is the God who created us and who loves us and finds great joy when we trust in Him. We have this expectation that God desires something for us. We're like the prodigal son ready to go back and work as a day laborer to pay back our debt. It's not what he requires. It's not what he wants. The call for you this morning, if you're here and have not accepted the grace of Christ, is to simply come. It's to simply come and receive. There's no work. There's no difficulty. There's no, I owe you. And God, when you come, is filled with unimaginable joy. He's filled with uncontainable joy that resounds through heaven. Your Father is loving and compassionate and embraced shame so that we might be His child. All you have to do is accept what He's done. What Christ has accomplished on the cross, all we have to do is come home. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, if you're a believer... This parable reminds us of some incredible truths about our God that we, when first reading this, may not experience without understanding the culture of this, without understanding the depth. This is a story of the worst possible sinner in the worst possible situation coming back to an un heard of, unbelievably gracious God. God is joyful God. God is a joyful God and He embraced shame and condescended to us in the man of Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, so that we may receive the blessing of being restored as a son and daughter.
In Jesus, we worship a God who received our punishment and suffered our affliction, and in doing so, demonstrates his love for all humanity. So don't you forget, believer, even if you've already accepted Christ, we forget the joy that was set before Jesus is the same joy that God is seeking now. God is not a solemn God. He's good. And He offers us a position in the throne room for the joy that was set before Him. Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. And we now have a position in that throne room because of what He did. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that we don't have to earn grace. We don't have to work for it. We can never pay back our debt. God, like the loving Father in this parable, all You provide, all You ask is that we return to You. Grace is free, God, and thank goodness it is. Father, when we return to you, we sometimes expect a lashing. We expect a punishment. Sometimes we expect to be scolded or lectured. That's not what you're calling, God. That's not what you do. That's not who you are. You're gracious. Thank you, Jesus, for embracing shame, for giving up your honor so that we might have honor with you. Thank you, Jesus, for experiencing such great joy over the salvation of a lost sinner. We can't understand the depth of the joy. Father, lead us to love your grace more. Lead us to understand these truths in a deeper way and let us show the world the incredible grace that you've offered for bringing heaven incredible joy. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you need to be someone to pray with you, I'll be up here. Um, if you want to respond, do as you feel led. Uh, let's